I'm James Coleman, and I'm an associate professor at SMU Dedman School of Law in Dallas, Texas. Appreciate you joining the program here today. Uh, we have a lot going on, especially what happened over the weekend and the week before when we're talking about OPEC and OPEC Plus and the new OPEC Plus Plus. And then we had this meeting happen in Texas on Tuesday, which is today when we're doing this interview. And lo and behold, I'm getting my, my social media is blowing up because this meeting, this this huge, long, day-long meeting, I don't know if it's going to spill into another day or not. It's going on. In fact, it's so hot that James Coleman, his story on Fox Business is white hot right now because it's right in the center of what's cooking. And so we thought we'd bring James Coleman on from SMU, but also a contributor for Fox Business. And we're going to have that link at our website as well with the story. Uh, James Coleman, how are you doing today? Doing well. Hanging in there. Well, I appreciate you joining the program here for this white hot information. I love it when something's hot off the press, but this is so hot it's in the middle because as uh, you, you mentioned before we started the interview, these meetings are still going on in Texas, aren't they? Well, that's right. They started at 9.30 this morning, and after there's 55 uh, very prominent members of the oil and gas industry uh, that are in that are planning are scheduled to speak. And I looked down during the third speaker and we'd already gone through two hours. So that meeting is still going on and who knows how long it will continue. So let's talk about your Fox business article here real quick about, you know, what's going on with the COVID-19. We got the global uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic and the shutdown happening but there, there were some other things that happened as well in terms of uh, the Saudi Arabia, Russia, OPEC. But even going into last year, there was, you know, Whiting Petroleum, who's kind of the poster child for a lot of things right now. You know, they laid off people last July, and then we had some November, some debt uh, happen as well. But so the, the industry's had, you know, some, some issues and things like that. But today, it sounds like there's kind of a, I don't know, almost like a game-changing announcement to quote the article. I just, I almost said game-changer and I pulled back, but then I looked and I saw it, it's in your article and I thought, nope, I'm going to quote it. So uh, there was kind of a game-changing announcement today that at least it sounds like it's coming out of Texas or uh, the news combining, if you will. Talk to me a little bit about this. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, what's happened is that we're emerging from the biggest oil and gas boom that the world has ever seen. It is, you know, an order of magnitude bigger than any oil and gas boom that's ever happened in history before. Uh, and so it's brought the U.S. to an unprecedented level of oil and gas production. <laughs> the problem is that just as we've been producing more oil and gas, we have uh, at the same time had this destruction in demand for oil and gas that's a result of this global pandemic which means that nobody can travel nobody can work everybody's got to uh you know do their best to social distance or stay home and that means that we're consuming less oil and gas and that's led to a catastrophic drop in oil prices in fact oil prices have dropped so far that in some places briefly they've been at negative prices you had to pay somebody to take that oil away so that's a very uh that's a very dramatic problem for 
you know, for producers in North Dakota and in Texas. And what's happening, um, so the way the world has responded is a couple things. One is that uh, some of the major oil producers in Russia and Saudi Arabia and the other members of OPEC have agreed to cut their production back about 20% to deal with this fall in demand. There's a continuing question about whether the U.S. will join them and cut back production. It undoubtedly will cut its production as, uh, to a certain extent as a result of market forces. That is, people will stop drilling, they will shut in some wells, and there'll be a fall in production. But the question is whether the states should go further in actually mandating some cuts to production as they have done in Saudi Arabia, Russia. And also, actually, I should note, they've done that in Alberta, just across the border in Canada. So you might wonder, well, why would any state cut its own oil production? That seems like an odd thing to do. But, you know, this is a request to cut production that was brought by producers in Texas. So there are um, these ongoing hearings in Texas about whether they should cut production. Nothing's been decided yet. There's a three commissioners asking questions and taking information. But they're hearing from oil and gas companies on both sides of the issues. Some of them saying, you need to order cuts to production so that we can all have a little bit higher prices. And other ones saying, no, let the market work it out. Yes, some of us are going to go bankrupt. Yes, we'll buy some other, you know, we'll have to, some of those bankrupt companies will have to be bought out. But we should just let, um, this is going to be hard, but we should let the market take care of it. And that's the huge debate that's happening in Texas right now. It's very controversial within the oil industry and between those, uh, between those oil and gas companies. I was going to ask if this was an unpopular topic down in Texas right now, and you just said it was controversial. So that answers that question. Um, what is the vibe right now in terms of some of the things that are happening? It, it, there's, there's production cuts. I mean, before we got on to this interview, I read Continental is, is doing some cuts and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I'm reading that, you know, business is going to bounce back sooner than ever, if you will. Um, what, what, what is the end result supposed to be with this Texas meeting, if you will? Because I was kind of reading some of the things going into it, and I know we're only halfway through on the day. And so and, and we'll get back to um, some of your research here in a second. But I just kind of wanted to see more about the vibe and just some of the things that are happening with what's kind of, um, I guess, the controversy, obviously, you have two sides. And the one side doesn't want production cuts, and the other side does. And I'm trying to figure out the what the end goal is supposed to be at the end of the day in Texas. I'm not sure if I even how to ask the question. Wow. No, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, because you might think, okay, so so let's 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 uh, you know start with what's puzzling, right? Everybody understands why an industry would say, don't cut my production. You know, normally no producer wants the state to come in and cut its production. And, you know, furthermore, most usually a producer prefers a free market, doesn't want to invite the government to step in and start regulating the level of the production. Right. So that that. So what we have to explain is why producers would like the government to step in and reduce production. Well, I, I guess I kind of got caught up for just a second because, like, you know, right away people think of New York, Colorado, California. Yeah, right. And, you know, and when we're talking about Texas, it it you can't make that comparison because the average Texan, that, that doesn't compute at all. Like that one, you, I mean, 
a, a reflex of a backhand is more common. Sounds like socialism. Oh, right. Totally, totally. And so yeah, that's yeah. why I'm trying to I'm trying to ask the question like how is this possible? Because <laughs> at the same time I don't I don't think that is what the intention is. Do you know what I mean by that? Where it's it's yeah, yeah. That, that's gonna that's... be the low hanging fruit as far as well, the perception well, goes. Well let me let me say a couple of things about that. One is that until for the you know, in the days of dominance of the American oil industry, which was basically from the 1901 to about 1970, really for sure ends 1972. In that time period, Texas always controlled production. It always set limits for its producers. So the kind of regulatory scheme that made Texas the center of world oil markets was about controlling production. Yes, it was a free market. Everybody got to find their own land, drill their own wells, develop their own technology. But it was done within an overall scheme that said, we're not going to have too much production overall, because if we do, we're going to waste a lot of resources that are going to be worth more money in the future. And so that kind of careful planning helped the free market develop in a way that made the U.S. the world's premier energy superpower. Okay, now... For the first time in half a century, the U.S. is again the world's premier energy superpower. And the question is, should we rediscover some of those tools that we used before that uh, helped us manage that oil and gas wealth? And so I think, you know, although it does sound, you know what, I would say that Texans, you know, Texans love the free market. But you know what Texans love even better than the free market? Something that works. Texans are not ideologues, right? They don't say, hey, you know, this is, we need to, um, you know, do, have one approach no matter, no matter what happens. They're looking for something that works for consumers, for the economy, uh, for producers, et cetera. And so the argument from um, the uh, people in this hearing supporting cuts is that this is something that will work to help ensure that our free market oil and gas system isn't destroyed, but continues to bring Texans prosperity. And so let me explain the theory of how that works. I'll try to explain some of the downsides as well um, when I do that. Uh, so so the theory is that uh, is a couple things. One is if you have market power, that means you're so dominant within a specific market that you can, when you cut back production, prices rise enough that you actually make more money. Now, Texas doesn't have market power within the global oil economy because to let's first approximation then i'll complicate this but to a first approximation the world is one oil market there's 100 million barrels a day if texas which produces five or six million barrels a day cuts back its production yeah that raises prices in the world a little bit but because texas is selling less it's going to make less money on the other hand if you get all of OPEC together, which is 30% of production, and all of Russia, which is 12% of production, and all of the U.S., which is 19% of production, that's 61% of the market. If they all cut back production at the same time, what's going to happen is oil prices will rise so much that they are going to all, everybody will make more money, all the oil and gas companies. So part of what's happening here is that on Sunday, Saudi Arabia, OPEC, and Russia announced that they were cutting back production 20%. So 
So part of what the drama here is, is Texas and the U.S. going to respond with its own cutbacks? And that's a little bit different because here it's not controlled by the federal government. It's controlled by the states. And that's kind of what Saudi Arabia and Russia are waiting to see. So one question is, does Texas want to show, hey, we're cooperating too. We're doing our best to restrain. Maybe you should cut back production even more to help us all out. Right. There's a cooperation. Uh, there's a cooperation game that's happening in a more immediate way. Texas might want to cut back production in certain fields where there's a lot of flaring. So, you know, even um, so, even though it's typically, you know, global, we have an increasingly global natural gas market, we have a global oil market, there can be big differentials between the price of oil in Midland and the price of oil in the Gulf Coast. Sometimes it was, you know, $20 a barrel in past years, right? There can be big differences, obviously, in gas prices. So, you know, we have low gas prices at the Henry Hub, or kind of what we consider natural gas or national natural gas prices in Louisiana, but they are way lower in West Texas. In fact, at a lot of wells, it's zero or even negative pricing, even at the Waha Hub. So even if you invested all the money in building gathering lines to take that natural gas to their local market, the Waha Hub, you have to pay somebody to take your gas away. So there's so what happens when you have those differentials is that the regulator has market power within those markets. So if tomorrow the Texas regulatory, uh, the Texas Railroad Commission stepped in and said, hey, everybody cut back natural gas production 10 percent in West Texas, all of those oil and gas companies, first of all, flaring would drop very low almost overnight. People do do it as much as they needed to for safety. But all of the economic driven flaring would go away. Second, what would happen is all of a sudden producers would be being paid money for their natural gas. So natural gas would go from a net negative on their balance sheet to a net positive. And so that's what market power means, that sometimes the regulator can step in and reduce production to increase profits for the industry. A lot of what we're talking about here, I can't, it, it just it seems like it has a lot of themes of things that used to be illegal in the 70s and 80s called price fixing and price manipulation. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you got to tell me I'm wrong here because again I don't know much about that. It it just seems like these are a lot of the themes about when I read about the concrete companies and the and the you know the big road companies that would get together at cafes and price fix and the the steel, the silver industry and that kind of thing. This just kind of yeah. seems like a lot of the the topics that were there and. They're just openly doing it, so uh, help me out, man. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right, exactly. Well, that is a that's a great question. Let me so let me tell you the answer. Um, the answer is that the government can do price price fixing. The government <laughs> can can. There's no there's no antitrust liability if the government made you do it. And so yeah, I think that's a lot of big puzzle. People say they say, well, why if these oil and gas companies want to produce less? Why don't they just produce less? And the answer is it doesn't help them if just one company does it. They all have to do it at the same time. And so then people say, well, why don't they just agree to all do it? Well, if they all agreed to cut back production, they would all go to jail and they would all be liable for billions of dollars because that's what our antitrust laws do. Is They say you can't agree to reduce production. That's what we're worried about with price fixing. But if the government orders you to reduce production, you absolutely can. And there's no absolutely zero liability. So that's a, that's the really interesting. Um, so that's why they're going to the government and asking uh, and asking for these reductions. Now, before we have these antitrust laws, people like Standard Oil, right? Rockefeller did exactly that. But now you can't do that as a private company. It has to be done through the government. 
Now, you might wonder, well, why does the government want higher oil and gas prices? Well, you know, absolutely you don't want high, higher oil and gas prices if you're Governor Cuomo in New York or if you are, you know, in Chicago. But if you are in a major oil and gas producer like North Dakota or Texas, yeah, absolutely you want higher oil and gas prices. Now, they're probably not going to do price fixing to an extent that will get them in a lot of trouble with the federal government. In fact, usually this works best if the federal government talks to the states, talks to the Industrial Commission in North Dakota, talks to the Railroad Commission in Texas, talks to the Corporation Commission in Oklahoma and says, hey, everybody, here's how much we want you to all cut back. Um, but it, so it usually works best if it's done with the federal government. And the federal government's not going to want, you know, it's kind of extreme price fixing that might hurt consumers. I kind of was thinking to myself, and actually what I wrote down in my notes was the enemy of my fr- my enemy is my friend and frenemy because I think the, the Railroad Commission actually oversees the fact that they want to ensure there is no price fixing. So I, that's why I think is really funny is that the Railroad Commission, their job is to make sure there is no price fixing, and now they're being used for it. So you just well, you can't right. make it up. It's, it's true. <laughs> Although, but keep in mind, the reason the Railroad Commission, I think, if you look at economic history, is the most important regulator in the history of the world because of how it managed Texas oil and gas markets in that period around World War II, from 1934 until really the 1960s and a little bit until 1972. And so in that period, Texas Railroad Commission was OPEC, and it determined whether the world, you know, if it raised oil prices, cut production to raise oil prices, it could send the whole world into an economic tailspin. And if it opened up the taps a little bit, that meant there was an economic boom. And so the Railroad Commission you know, although it does have, it does, it's supposed to prevent the industry from coming together by itself and fixing prices. It has always, its central role has been to raise oil and gas prices to ensure that Texans, Texan workers, Texan landowners, Texan industry, Texan investors got good money for their oil and gas. And let's not forget that it is the Railroad Commission, which at the end of the day, um, their job is to keep the trains moving on time, right? And and, and whether that's the actual trains or whether it's the oil and gas or the economy, um, you know, it's it's really it's it's symbolic, in my opinion, of really the the, the big the big industries that are the engine of the economy. That's how I kind of look at it symbolically um, with the Railroad Commission, because it is kind of funny when you think about the Railroad Commission overseeing oil and gas. Oh, no, it is, it's, it's hilarious, I think, to me that, you know, history's most important economic regulator is called the Railroad Commission. It's important to me, it's, it's hilarious to me that the biggest oil and gas, or the most important oil and gas regulator in the world is called the Railroad Commission. Uh, basically, what happened is that, you know, oil and gas, especially, or sorry, particularly oil during the Rockefeller era was moved on uh, pipelines or railroads. Mm-hmm. And so, and so basically, the, when, you know, the, um, the legislature said, oh, well, you regulate uh, railroads, you should regulate pipelines as well. And then once they started regulating pipelines, they said, well, if you're regulating pipelines, if we need to regulate overall production, seems like you should be in charge of it as well. But it's funny that, yeah, the Railroad Commission spends all of its time on oil and gas, and it's, you know, universally recognized as probably the world's premier experts on oil and gas production. And yet they have a, a name that makes you think that they regulate trains. Well, that's again, keep the trains on time, whether it's coming through a pipe or whether it's coming on a rail, you got to keep those economies going. That's what makes the the engine go. Uh, I did want to ask you uh, about the flaring angle, because I'm really glad that you brought that up, because one of the things that I would imagine that at least is 
talked about, I don't know, publicly, but at least maybe on the side meetings here at this Texas Railroad Commission meeting is that if there is a decrease in production, two things are going to happen on the flaring side of things. Number one is you're going to reduce emissions, and that's going to, uh, I would imagine, yeah. appease a lot of environmentalists. Uh, secondly, it's going to give the innovators a chance to catch up with how to make that hydrocarbon more profitable. And I don't know if that second one can happen, but at least it gives a little bit of an opportunity for them to catch up with that because time is their biggest biggest uh, um, enemy, I guess, right now in terms of that. But is, is that brought up at all, that environmental angle? You brought up the flaring, so I just wanted to chime in with, uh, have you followed the environmental side of that or the innovative side of that? Oh, ab absolutely. I mean, there is no question. So this deal that was announced on Sunday between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and it's announced by the U.S., the U.S. basically brokered this deal. There has never been a any step taken by the United States that would have such a dramatic effect on lowering global greenhouse gas emissions, right? This at a single, I mean, this makes something like the Clean Power Plan, which was done in the last years of the Obama administration, that's a rounding error compared to this. If you take knock 20% off global fossil fuel production for, you know, even for a few months, much less if you had continuing co cooperation to keep prices at least not way too low, that has a bunch of benefits. One is it just at the, at the basic level, it reduces greenhouse gas emissions from the sector by 20%. Secondly, it, um, it encourages other forms of alternative technology because Right now, a Tesla or solar power or wind power look like terrible investments because why would you invest in a Tesla if you can get gasoline for under a dollar a gallon? Why would you build solar or wind power when natural gas is at rock bottom prices, right? So having, um, so doing something to have you know, more reasonable pricing does encourage alternative, uh, alternative technologies as well, as well as benefiting the, uh, the oil and gas industry. So I think that's important. Um, so I think that's that's a huge, you know, potential environmental benefit. And the other benefit, of course, is yes, it could reduce flaring. So, um, I mean, if you if you just remember, it's only about you know four or five percent of Texas natural gas is flared. So if you said, hey, Texas producers, you got to cut back your natural gas production by twenty percent, or even ten percent, or even six percent, immediately that flaring would go away unless it was needed for uh, economic reasons because basically you know the way that would be done is you would ask each company to cut back but if you would allow them to trade their allowances so if one company could cut back more it would so who would be the first to cut back their natural gas production it would be the people who are getting no money for it we're just flaring right and so all of that flaring would go away immediately and i think that would have two benefits one is you know right now that flaring has no environmental you know that natural gas has no benefit it's just emitting carbon dioxide to the atmosphere but if we can slow it down a little bit, that natural gas can have huge environmental benefits because, you know, not only does it burn cleaner than coal or oil from the perspective of power, and that's a hugely important thing for, uh, for carbon dioxide and also from the perspective of carbon, right? It's about 50% of the carbon emissions or 60% of the carbon emissions of coal. Coal is the world's number one source of power. So if we could replace some coal with natural gas, we get lower carbon emissions. 
But even more dramatically, the world's number one problem in terms of environmental problems isn't climate change. You know, any environmental economist would tell you by far the biggest problem is air pollution. Air pollution has a daily effect on people's lives, even in the United States, but also especially in places like uh, China, India, Pakistan, etc. And so if we can replace coal with natural gas, natural gas is incredibly clean burning. So although natural gas is like kind of on the middle on a climate scale between between uh, coal and something like nuclear power, if you look at its particulate matter emissions or sulfur dioxide, all the things that are harmful to breathe, basically natural gas takes those to zero. So it is a it is something that could do a, a massive amount to clean up air around the world if we can take the time to get it to the markets that need it rather than just burning it off, flaring it at uh, fields, uh, you know, in the Bakken and the Permian. I've actually seen studies where natural gas is cleaner than wind energy. And the reason is, is because of the, uh, the amount of construction and manufacturing and just everything that goes into the whole project behind it. Because at the end of the day, what does natural gas have really kind of one hydrocarbon that's kind of dirty? Um, I think I, I, the numbers are really small, but the, nat the natural gas is, I cannot believe how much my mind has changed on natural gas being a lot greener than I would have ever thought. Um, oh, yeah. It's incredible. And I, I guess my, my future that I see is, you know, a combination of a lot of all of the above. And natural mm -hmm. gas is going to be needed for all of them. <laughs> That's how yeah. I, I look at it, to be honest, because wind energy has got a long ways to go. I'm I'm on record by saying that I believe farmers from 150 years ago were more efficient with wind energy than we are today because, you know, 100 years ago, they powered the pole barn and got water. That's pretty good for, uh -huh. you know, a couple hundred buck investment back then. Yeah. Now, nowadays, it takes quite a bit, and they're finding out more and more that they're not as uh, economically efficient as possible or as they thought they were. And plus they need subsidies. Solar, I, I'm, I'm a lot more positive on. Um, I think their biggest issue is the battery is, is trying to yeah. get to that terawatt of storage. And that raises a whole new issue of cobalt mining and lithium oh, yeah. mining and that whole deal. So then I go back to, boy, natural gas is pretty good right now. So yeah. I, I'm looking at, you know, the pipes they're trying to build to Mexico. I'm looking at the innovation and, I, I just see where, it, you know, as weird as it sounds to do production cuts and some of these other things, if you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture, it almost seems like this is going to be better off a year or two from now, and it's going to get us to our goal a lot faster. I, I don't know if I'm making sense, Mr. Coleman, or not, but uh, do you understand yeah. what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, I mean, that is my belief as well. And, and so actually, I mean, to be clear, um, I think that putting, you know, my view of these Texas railroad cuts is that it would be, it's probably too early to cut back on oil production, right? Because, you know, if you cut, I mean, the theory of oil production is, oh, well, Texas can, you know, form an alliance with Saudi Arabia and Russia, and so they're all going to cut. Well, you know, Texas, I mean, they're trying to do, and one of their commissioners is, you know, been, is going to go to the OPEC meeting in June. But Texas is not really ready to make any kind of formal alliance with Saudi Arabia or Russia. That is just not politically um, that's not politically feasible. And so um, and so I think it's too early to do that. But um, and also keep in mind, you know, the thing about oil is right now it's being sold for too little money. And that's a big problem for the industry. 
but it's nothing like the problem of just burning off natural gas, just wasting it, right? And so uh, what I would suggest instead is the Texas Railroad Commission should impose limits on that gas production just in the fields that don't have enough pipelines to get them to market, so it's being flared, so just in the Permian. And I would actually recommend something similar in North Dakota, which is cut you know, cut back production just to slow it a little bit so that we don't have so much flaring and we preserve that natural gas for when it's more valuable in the future. Because one thing, we don't know where oil prices are going. But one thing we can be pretty sure of is natural gas prices, if it's currently getting $0 or negative dollars, it will be more worth more in the future. And so if we can hold it back a little bit, that can have big economic and environmental benefits for us. And the way I would handle the, you know, the issue that I mean, I understand OPEC is looking to us now. Saudi Arabia is looking to us. Russia is saying, hey, we're, we cut. Why don't you cut a little bit? What I would do is, is this. If you're cutting gas production in the Permian or in the Bakken, that will also cut oil production a little bit. Now, that's probably, uh, that's probably a negative because when you cut that oil production a little bit, which are, you know, that means that you know, that means you're getting less money from oil because you're still getting positive money from oil, not negative, like from natural gas, at least in most places. But what I would do is two things. One is you could limit that impact on oil production by allowing, again, those gas cuts to trade with each other. And so the people that could cut their gas without cutting their oil production would do so. And so maybe, you know, if you cut gas 10%, you'd only really, that would only amount to a 5% cut in oil. So it would limit the impact on cash flow. Secondly, you would, um, for that remainder 5% that you cut oil, and that oil was cut back necessarily by your gas cuts, I would go to OPEC, go to Saudi Arabia, go to Russia with that and say, hey, look, we acted in good faith. We, if you look at the cuts that we made, they did cut our oil production a little bit as well because we're acting, you know, could you please cut a little bit more to help support uh, energy markets at that time? So I think that would allow the, um, the Railroad Commission to kind of meet its mix of, you know, uh, economic, environmental, and geopolitical goals. It's crazy that all of this is being, uh, you know, decided on a on a web hearing that anybody can can attend uh, in Texas right now. But that's the reality of our current world. Oh, I forgot about that. The whole thing's being done over a um, a webinar, basically. Yeah, that's right. That's oh, right. Yeah, and you know, wow. anybody can sign in. <laughs> right. Exactly. I saw where you know they're trying to get. Even that kind of banned now because of Zoom bombs and whatever else yeah. they got going on. But oh, well, I, I shouldn't say everybody. I mean, I think it's. I think it may be secured. It's not Zoom. It's, it's, it's something else. So no, it, so no there it's, are... I, I know it's not Zoom. In fact, I've <laughs> I've seen some people upset on social media that they're not doing that, and I'm thinking, okay, guys, now we're getting nitpicky here. It's getting, we're, we, our our problems. If we're trying to nitpick that, okay, we've we got to find some <laughs> new stress here, I guess, but. Uh, Fox Business, if you want to check out his recent article, James Coleman, professor at Southern Methodist Universities. Is it Deadman? Dead yeah, Deadman. Deadman, dead okay, School of Law. It's D-E-D-M-A-N, Deadman, School of Law, focused on energy and environmental law. Outstanding. In fact, that's what this program is focused on, is, you know, living the crude life, but we took it, we, we really saw that the energy industry was <laughs> and this is you get a kick out of this you're from the midwest so you probably grew up with harry the dirty dog that coal and oil and gas were dirty so dirty you know that harry the dirty dog that's how he got so dirty 
and um, <laughs> going down the coal chutes and all that other stuff. But I honestly, I, I have come to terms with the fact that the energy industry is one of the leaders on the planet, if not the leader, on the environmental movement. They're investing more money in the technology that is going to allow us to live in the next chapter of our lives. Honestly, that's where I came from. It's mm-hmm. um, I, I've been very impressed at the environmental movement that the energy industry has really gotten behind. And um, I say that because I feel like it's almost like a balance because they get so uh-huh. dog, dogged on the other side. And I always say they don't need my support. You know, they've got they're like a 5,000 pound gorilla and I'm an ant. So, I mean, I don't know what I can do for them. But at the same time, I do know when people are getting picked on. I do know that. Right. I've seen that right. my whole life. And they have been getting picked on unfairly. And one of the reasons that I think so is they've done a tremendous job investing in innovation. I think they really have. Um, and you mentioned earlier really how powerful the oil and gas industry is in Texas alone. I've seen reports from some very smart people that this whole shale boom that's currently going on, there's another 20, 30 years left in it, and 70% of it's still going to come out of the Permian Basin. So mm-hmm. yeah, Texas is going to continue to be the powerhouse that they are. But um, anyway, uh, uh, just wanted to give you an opportunity for a plug. So is there a way people can access your stuff? Should they follow you on Box, Fox News, uh, Fox Business, or do you have a blog or anything like that? Yeah, probably you can, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Energy Law Prof. So energy law prof and or you can go to my blog which is energylawprof.com we will have those on our website as well awesome thank you sir all right thank you